0: Well, I asked Blake to lead us in that song before the sermon this morning because that song is based on a true story of a Christian family who was persecuted for their faith in Christ. And you may have remembered me sharing this story this past summer when I preached a message out of the Gospel of John called No Turning Back. The story goes like this. A man from northeast India along with his wife and children were converted to Christ. During the late 1800s through the efforts of a Welsh missionary, the village they lived in was deeply entrenched in Hinduism and brutally ruled by headhunters. The village leaders decided to make an example out of this man and had he and his family arrested. They demanded that the man renounce his faith in Christ or his wife and children would be killed. He boldly replied, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. And with that, his wife was killed right in front of him. Again, this man was told to recant his faith in Christ or his kids would be killed. And despite the threat to his children, he said, Though none go with me, still I will follow. After watching his kids be murdered, the man was given one more chance to reject Christ or he would be executed. And the last thing he said before he died was, The cross before me and the world behind me. And as a result of this family's bold martyrdom, a revival broke out in that village. And those who had killed him repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And many others were converted as the gospel spread like wildfire throughout that entire region. And this astonishing story of of this man's unwavering commitment to Christ spread as well. And a famous Indian evangelist took his dying words and put them to music. And the song became one of the first Indian hymns, and it is still sung today in Indian churches and also in churches around the world like ours. It's the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And so in every generation, there have been those who have suffered persecution for the sake of Christ. And as we consider this great cloud of witnesses this morning who were suffering and who are still suffering and being willing to die for their faith, we should be inspired, we should be challenged to greater devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can honor the sacrifice that these men and women have made and continue to make by following their example of total dedication and total commitment to Christ. I think one of the greatest examples in the history of the church for us to follow was, of course, the Apostle Paul. He suffered for the cost of Christ as much, if not more, than any other Christian who has ever lived. And yet we learn from his letters that it didn't matter to him what he suffered or how he was persecuted as long as it served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what he expressed in the text that I want us to look at today today. It's Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 and my desire this morning is that we would have a biblical perspective on persecution that we wouldn't just gather today to remember the persecuted church and and to shed a few tears and to to have that uh, you know sick feeling in our stomachs and and uh, feel like we've in some way done a good service to them. We need to think about this whole thing biblically. We need to see persecution and what's happening around the world today uh, in the church uh, from God's perspective. And Paul had God's perspective, and uh, he expressed this here in First or excuse me in Philippians chapter one, starting in verse twelve. He says, "Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances." have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Notice Paul says here, I want you to know, brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That's a loaded expression there, my circumstances. Where do we begin to talk about uh, the circumstances that Paul experienced? Well, we can start by saying that Paul was writing this letter while he was imprisoned. He was under house arrest in Rome. Uh, The book of Philippians is one of uh, what they call... Uh, four prison epistles, four letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. Uh, Paul's goal had always been to preach the gospel in Rome. Uh, This was the key city in the world at the time, and he knew if he could could penetrate Rome with the gospel, that would be a a platform to impact millions of lives for Christ and reach to the ends of the earth. Paul's plan was to travel to Rome and, and do what he had done in every other city, which was to show up and preach in the synagogues and the marketplaces and win people to Christ, both Jews and Greeks, and then plant a church or churches. However, that was not God's plan for Rome. Paul had already written a letter to them, right, telling them that he was on his way. Um, But he arrived in a lot different uh, form than he thought he would. If you remember, while he was in Jerusalem, he was accused of desecrating the temple by bringing uh, in a Gentile, and the Jews dragged him out of the temple, and they beat him uh, to death, or they almost beat him to death, before some Roman soldiers intervened. And when the commander uh, couldn't decide what to do with Paul, he sent him to Felix, who was the governor of Caesarea at the time. And when, when Felix couldn't decide what to do with him, he left Paul for his successor Festus to deal with. And Festus tried to send him back to Jerusalem for trial but that would have resulted in certain death, and that's when Paul claimed his right as a Roman citizen and appealed his case before Caesar. And so on his way to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar, Paul, if you remember, was in this horrendous uh, storm at sea uh, and, and, and experienced this uh, shipwreck, and uh, he and all the crew survived, and after waiting three months on the island of Malta, Paul finally arrived in Rome, but not as he originally intended, not as a preacher, but as a prisoner in chains. And he spent two years under house arrest waiting for his day before Nero, who was the Caesar in that day. And yet, despite being the victim of an unlawful arrest and unlawful imprisonment, and despite all the other things he went through, Paul rejoiced In his circumstances, because God sovereignly used them to further the gospel in ways that were above and beyond anything he could have ever expected or could have even imagined. Notice he says, I want you to know. Brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That word progress there is, is a Greek word that was uh, really a military term that was used to refer to a group of army engineers who would go before uh, an army or go before the troops to prepare the way for them uh, into a new territory. And so they would hack their way through dense trees and underbrush and clear a path and actually sometimes actually build a road. So that army could go and advance where they needed to. And so instead of hindering or, or restricting Paul's ability to proclaim the gospel, his difficult circumstances had done the very opposite. They provided him with some very unique and unprecedented opportunities to share Christ that he would have not had in any other way. And so the things he endured cleared the way for the gospel to go places where previously they were impossible to reach. And because of that, Paul rejoiced. Why? Why? Because Paul's passion was to see the gospel spread throughout the entire world. And he realized that the suffering and persecution of Christians was the God-ordained means to advance the gospel. Let me say that again, because that might be hard for us to get our minds around this morning. Paul realized that suffering and persecution of Christians is the God-ordained means to advance the gospel. You say, how did he know that? Well, he knew that from firsthand experience because he was originally on the other side. He was on the other team, if you will. He was the one doing the persecuting. And I think it's interesting, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we know that Jesus said to the the apostles that they were to remain in Jerusalem uh, until they received the Holy Spirit, right? Right? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, initially after Pentecost, uh, the apostles remained in Jerusalem and the the gospel was flourishing in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem. However, God's design was that the gospel wouldn't stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, but the church would advance, right, into Judea and Samaria, the surrounding regions, and ultimately to the, to the ends of the earth. And so what did Paul do? What did, what did God do to, to ensure that Acts 1-8 became a reality? It wasn't like uh, he laid it on people's hearts in the church in Jerusalem. You know, I think we need to send a short-term missions, trip to, missions team to Samaria. I think we need to send some people out to, 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 to bring the gospel to other people. No, that's not how it happened at all. How it happened was through the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. And if you remember in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. All the men that had stoned Stephen had laid their coats at this young Pharisee's feet, this young rabbi's feet by the name of Saul, soon to be the Apostle Paul. And it says, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Hint, hint. Luke's letting us know God's getting the gospel to advance in a very unique way. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, for example, went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And so Paul knew from firsthand experience that that God ordained the persecution of the church to advance the church, to grow the church. And so persecution is the catalyst for the growth of the church. You've probably heard that famous statement. I don't know who, who originally said it. But it goes like this, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the more Satan and the world tries to crush the church, the more it flourishes, the more it it grows. And I think the the greatest expansions and and revivals in the church, if you know anything about church history, you know that the greatest revivals, the greatest expansions have come during times of greatest opposition, times of greatest persecution. A great example of this is, is, is what happened in China when communism engulfed China after the Second World War in 1949 and Mao became the ruler and it became the Republic of China and the communist rule was established, Christianity was outlawed and missionaries were forced to leave. And yet what happened was the church went underground and, and reproduced like crazy. Crazy. And years later, when missionaries were finally allowed to return, they were amazed to find literally millions of Bible-believing Christians. And so, at the end of the day, all the, the communist efforts to silence the truth had backfired. And I think this is just one of many examples of how what Satan and evil men mean for evil, God uses for good. We know that from Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, right? Joseph said to his brothers, "Hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good." And so it's like uh, all the people throughout uh, history who have tried to 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 quench the fire of the church uh, by pouring water on it, it was like they didn't realize they had a they had a, they had a gas can in their hand. They thought they were pouring water on it, right? When they were actually pouring gas on it and it just continued to 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 grow and get bigger and bigger. And so This is what Paul is saying about his chains, that what evil men meant for evil, right? God meant for good. These chains were were a good thing. And little did the Romans realize that that you put Paul in chains, um, (laughs) you're just going to make the gospel flourish even more. Um, I love what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 9, he says, for talking about the, the, Jesus Christ, remembering Christ, for whom I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. In other words, you can chain me up, but you can't chain up the gospel. And uh, in fact, chain me up and let's see what happens to the gospel. It's gonna, you're you're going to give it a platform that it didn't have before. You're helping the gospel flourish and advance. And so that's what Paul wanted the Philippians to understand. Again, notice he says, he says, I want you to know, brethren, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He he wanted to make sure that they understood what might have easily been missed or hard to accept. I mean, put yourself in the Philippian sandals for a second, right? It's been four years since uh, they had seen Paul. They had most likely heard the rumors about the, the terrible things that had happened to him and they were naturally concerned for him and they probably were wondering whether or not he was still in jail, whether he had, had gone to trial, uh, had, uh, whether or not he had been martyred for his faith in Christ. And so finally a letter arrives from Paul and they tear it open. I guess they don't tear it open. They en- enrolled it, right, the scroll. And, uh, and after this greeting and encouraging them, uh, he confirmed their fears, the reports that they had heard were true. He was still in prison and, and, and his future was still uncertain. And yet despite all that he had suffered and was suffering, he wanted them to know he wasn't embittered, he wasn't discouraged, he wasn't frustrated, but he had great reason to rejoice because God was using all that he had gone through, all that he was presently going through for the greater progress of the gospel, and specifically, as we're going to see here in verses 13 and 14, that God was using it to expose more unbelievers to Christ and to inspire believers to share Christ, more boldly, more aggressively. So Paul's point is simply this, that there are no accidents with God. This is, I'm not in jail. I'm not in prison by accident. God causes all things to work together for good, even bad things, Right? And that good, that God was working through Paul's trial, through this bad situation in his life, could be simply defined as causing people to come to know Christ and grow in Christ. Um, Romans 8:28. God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And then it says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So no matter what's going on in the world, in the universe, okay, let's even make it that big, the universe and planet Earth and in your life, God is using it, right, to either help you come to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, or to help you grow in your relationship with Christ, or maybe he's using it to help someone else come to know Christ or help them grow in Christ. And so boys. James Montgomery Boyce, says about this one sentence in, in, in verse 12, he says, Paul shifts the legitimate interest and concern of the Philippians. They were concerned and, and legitimately interested for him, but he shifts their, their focus from himself to the great undeterred purposes of God in history. In other words, Paul's saying, hey guys, it's not about me. It's not about me. I appreciate your concern. Okay, I appreciate that, it means a lot to me, but you just need to know it's not about me. I want to help you see something right, about what I'm going through that is just magnificent, it's just glorious. What Paul is revealing here, or what is revealed in this text, is that there are different kinds of suffering. God allows you to suffer for different reasons. Um, you all experience suffering of some sort, some kind, some, some way, somewhere, right? You, you know what suffering's like. Well, there's, there's typically three kinds of suffering. There's corrective suffering. Uh, this is the kind of suffering that you may experience that's intended by God to get you back on the right track when you stray. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 5 through 11 talk about this kind of suffering, this kind of discipline, right? The Lord loves us as his children, and uh, any good dad will discipline his son or child when he's disobedient, right? And so sometimes we, we suffer um, because uh, we need to be corrected, because we've strayed, and the Lord wants us to bring us, bring us back on the right path so that we walk in righteousness. So there's corrective suffering. Some suffering is instructive. It's not necessarily because you have done anything wrong and you're experiencing the consequences of your sin. Some isn't just purely instructive. It's simply intended to continue to mold you and shape you and refine you into the image of Jesus Christ. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not suffering um, by way of correction. God's not trying to correct anything in your life necessarily. He's just trying to instruct you. He's trying to, to grow you and mature you and kind of take you to the next level in your relationship to him, make you closer to him, make you more like Christ. Well, in this context, I don't think Paul was suffering either corrective suffering, he wasn't experiencing corrective suffering, or instructive suffering, although all suffering is instructive, right? It all God uses all of it to conform us to Christ. I think that Paul was was experiencing what we could call redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. You say, what's that? Well, I think it's suffering that God permits in our lives so the gospel may spread to others. It's suffering that God permits, he allows in our lives, he ordains for our lives so that the gospel might spread to others. That's the only purpose. It's the only purpose is to get the gospel out. Now, not many of us have ever or will ever experience this kind of suffering. If you do, James Boyce says, you must know that God has greatly honored you with this suffering, and you must take joy, even in the midst of it, as you see how your suffering brought salvation to others. This is a joy won through veils of tears, but it is one of the choicest prizes of the Christian life. And God does. He, he puts all of us, at times, potentially, in, in situations where we suffer And we don't necessarily know why we suffer, but then at the end of the day, we found out that someone came to know Christ through our testimony, through our witness in the time of suffering. For example, I'll never forget John MacArthur sharing a story about when he had knee surgery and uh, an old football injury. And and so he had knee surgery and and, uh, was recovering fine. And then one morning, he just clumped to the floor Uh, In his in his living room, uh, doubled over in pain, and his wife came up and said, "What are you doing down there? Get up! Stop being a a whiner, you know." And uh, he couldn't move, and he had this excruciating pain. Well, he was rushed to the emergency room, and it found out that he had he had air bubbles in his bloodstream, and they were they were going towards his heart, and obviously that could be fatal. And so, uh, there was a doctor who came and uh, cared for him while he was in the hospital. And uh, they struck up a friendship, and uh, of course, uh, God used this doctor to save John's life. And so he invited him to come to church. He found out that he was a pastor, and he said, Why don't you come? I'd love to have you come and visit my church once I get back in the pulpit. So the very first Sunday, when John was able to get back in the pulpit, guess who was sitting out there in the crowd? It was that doctor. And in the providence of God, John was beginning an exposition on the Gospel of Luke. And so the very first sermon was all about explaining Dr. Luke. And so he got to talk about being a doctor and what that was like in the first century. And this was such a clear connection, right, to this guy, this doctor out there. He gets saved. And so John says, listen, I have no idea why else God would have allowed those air bubbles to be in my bloodstream other than to reach this doctor with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an example of redemptive suffering, right? Some of you have been in those situations, right? You've been in... Uh, situations where uh, you were exposed to people you would have never been exposed to in your life had you not been going through that suffering. And God used that platform, right, for you to share the gospel. And so I want, you, I want us to see how this played itself out in Paul's uh, predicament here, his imprisonment. And, and specifically, there's two ways that Paul's imprisonment helped the progress of the gospel. He wanted them to know, hey, I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What are you talking about? Be specific. Well, let me tell you two ways that the gospel advanced or progressed as a result of my imprisonment. There was one way outside the church and there was one way inside the church. The gospel made progress outside the church in that, His suffering, his imprisonment, provided contact with unbelievers. It provided him with contact provided him contact with unbelievers. Notice what he says in verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian garden to everyone else. My imprisonment, literally my chains for Christ. We we know that Paul was in chains. Um, uh, Ephesians six twenty talks about he asked the the believers in Ephesus another prison epistle he wrote at the same time he wrote Philippians. Uh, he said, "Remember my chains." Um, Colossians four talks about him being uh, in chains. Um, he was he was literally chained to a Roman soldier twenty four seven. In Acts chapter twenty eight, Acts chapter twenty eight verse sixteen, we we get a some insight into. Paul's house arrest here, Acts 28, verse 16, when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, and when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had had any accusation against my nation. He says, for this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. So here he was, chained up to this guard. Um, The guards would shift, according to custom, every six hours, which which meant Paul could witness to four soldiers every day. And, uh, I mean, talk about a captive audience. The question is, who was, who was chained to who? Right? The guards probably felt like the prisoner, uh, more, more so than Paul. And, and imagine yourself as one of those soldiers who was chained to Paul. I mean, their job required them that they listened to everything he said and watched every movie make, right? That's the job of a guard. And so they heard him praying. They listened to the many spiritual conversations that he had with believers who, who, who visited him. In fact, uh, it says at the end of, of, of Acts 28 that he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. Uh, this was the house arrest and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So uh, you, you know that, that uh, these guards overheard him sharing the gospel countless times. They maybe heard him dictating these letters to the churches. They watched him conduct himself with integrity. They, they saw his joy, his patience, his gentleness, his courage, his conviction. And I'm sure that, that it was easy for them to see that Paul was no ordinary prisoner. In fact, he, he was definitely not the criminal that he was made out to be. And over the course of those two years, while under house arrest, he developed close relationships with many of these soldiers, and apparently some of them repented and placed their faith in Christ. Notice, he says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian Guard was the elite group of soldiers that were handpicked to guard the palace of the Emperor. I mean, this was the official, these were the official bodyguards of Caesar. This would be like the, the Secret Service in the U.S., right, that guards the President of the United States. And so Paul's imprisonment provided him contact with these, these highly influential soldiers, so, something that he would never have had as a free man. He would never had access to these guys. What's more, through their influence... Paul gained access to share Christ with everyone in Caesar's household, and most likely Nero himself. Notice it says here that, that uh, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And in fa- fact, in Philippians four, verse twenty-two, he's giving some final greetings, and he says, "All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household." What that means is, 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 Caesar's household, man, they were going down for Christ. I mean, they were dropping like flies, right? Coming to Christ. And he was, he was talking to the maids and the butlers and the, the guards and, the, you know, you name it, right? He was witnessing to these people. And they were coming to Christ. And so everyone in Caesar's household was aware of this extraordinary prisoner named Paul who was in chains. Not because he killed someone, not because he had led some rebellion or or any other reason why you normally got right imprisoned, he was imprisoned for following a guy named Jesus Christ. I'm sure there was much intrigue in people's minds: who is this guy, and what is he all about? Another story from church history, I think, uh, illustrates this dynamic of how God uses imprisonment to advance the gospel um, uh, in in ways uh, that are just beyond human imagination. John Bunyan was uh, a well-known preacher in in England during the 17th century, and he was a very popular preacher, a very powerful preacher, but the leaders in his day did not appreciate him because he was turning people against the Church of England. And so in order to silence him, they threw him in jail in his town in Bedford, England. And yet he refused to be silent. He began to preach in the jail courtyards. And uh, every day, large crowds of of inmates would would surround him and he would preach the gospel. And people from the the, the town and even the surrounding area would would gather outside the prison walls. They couldn't even see the guy. They just heard his voice projected over the wall. And they would hear his sermons. Well, again, that frustrated the the authorities. And so they, they placed him deep inside the jail where... He wasn't able to talk to anybody and couldn't preach at all. And yet in that silence, he spoke the loudest of all and to more people than he could ever imagine because it was during that time that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which, again, to this day is the most widely read and translated book in the world next to the Bible. And so Bunyan's opponents weren't able to stop, they were able to stop his preaching Right For a few years, 10 years I think is how long he stayed in jail, but they were not able to stop his, his ministry and the advancement of the gospel. And instead, that jail cell served as a launching pad to extend his ministry to the ends of the earth and, and through the ages. And so again, God uses all sorts of, of negative circumstances that put us in contact with unbelievers so that we can share the gospel with them. I was reminded this morning of Jerry Ronkeel, he, he goes to uh, first service, and I'll never forget when he was out working on his ranch, and he got stepped on by a cow, and um, a heifer, I guess, is what it was, right? Got to get the terms right here. It's a heifer. And uh, anyway, this, 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 this cow jumped and, and stomped on his chest. Thankfully, it wasn't on his heart side, because he could have died instantly, right? Um, but it was on the other side, cracked ribs, punctured a hole in his lung. He was in the emergency room. I get a phone call. I'm driving up through the woodlands. I get this phone call that Jerry Ronkeel is in the hospital and the emergency room at Herman Memorial. So I just zip in there and I come into the emergency room. There's Jerry laid out, not moving an inch because he's so, in so much pain. And he's laying there and he could just barely talk. I could barely understand what he was saying because it, ta- it hurt to talk. And he said, Ken, I don't know why I'm here, but I know there's going to be some doctors, doctors and nurses who are going to hear the gospel. That was his response. He had no clue why he got stepped on by his heifer, right? Other than he was there and he was going to take advantage of that opportunity. They, apparently, God had some nurses and doctors that needed to hear the gospel and he was going to be a witness for Christ there in that hospital. So again, do you see how God uses circumstances, right? Paul's circumstances, your circumstances, to advance the gospel, to provide contact with other unbelievers that you would never have in any other way. Number two, there was a second way that the gospel was advanced through Paul's imprisonment, and that was not outside the church, it was inside the church, in that it provided courage to believers. It provided courage to believers. Notice verse 14, he says, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So the second way Paul's imprisonment served to advance the gospel was among the believers in Rome. Paul had previously written them a magnificent letter, um, the book of Romans, right, where he expressed his boldness in sharing the gospel, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And so Paul proved, he put his money where his mouth is, if you will. He proved he wasn't ashamed of the gospel by being willing to undergo all sorts of persecution and even going to prison for preaching the gospel. And and this was not a good time to be a Christian. Let's just say that. Okay, hostility toward Christianity increased greatly in Rome under the reign of Nero. Nero was the guy we've talked about. i told you about him. He was the guy that would impale Christians on spikes, douse them in pitch, light them, in, light them on fire, and put them in his garden during his garden parties, using Christians as human tiki torches. The guy was a maniac. And so needless to say, Christians would have been afraid or at least reluctant to openly share their faith in Christ, but seeing Paul's example, right? Here's a guy, right, in, in jail for the cause of Christ that encouraged them, that, it, that motivated them to, to fearlessly proclaim the gospel to others. He says to, to, to speak the word of God with, with courage, without fear. And so many believers were, were inspired by his example to boldly preach the gospel, no matter the cost. And so it just infused uh, the body of Christ in Rome with courage. You guys probably remember the story of uh, the five missionaries who went down to the jungles of Ecuador and uh, wanted to reach the, the Alca Indians, this primitive tribe, that any time anyone from the outside world would try to contact them, they would be met with violence and, and, and oftentimes killed. And this is, of course, the story through gates of splendor, Right? Jim Elliott and, and uh, his friends, Steve Elliott and others. Um, um, did I say Steve Elliott? What's his name? Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. Yeah, I said Jim Elliott and Steve Saint. Thank you. I was thinking of Stephen Elliott. He's like, go to our church. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. These five guys, and they went down there, and it's so compelling that these missionaries made a pact amongst themselves and, and even with their wives that if they were attacked, they would not shoot these Indians to protect themselves. Why? Because they said, we're ready for eternity, and they're not. If we shoot them, they'll go to hell. But if they kill us, we know we're going to go to heaven. And as you know, they were all speared to death on the riverside there in, in Ecuador. But God used their blood to spark a revival of one of the greatest missionary surges in the history of the modern church. I mean, people, the, the news of this went out. The story of, their, of these five guys who gave their lives down in the jungles of Ecuador uh, just just, just went, spread like wildfire. And it was like everybody was signing up to be a missionary. Everyone wanted to become a missionary. Why? They were, they were so inspired. They were so motivated. They were, they were emboldened for the cause of Christ. And I think that's the same effect that we we should have, it should, for us to see the courageous commitment of today's persecuted Christians, that's how it should, I mean, to, if you were here during Equipment Hour, you see the story of Fatima. How, how should that impact you? You should just say, oh, man, that was really sad. Well, then if that's all you felt was sadness and sorrow and pity, then you missed the whole point, right? That, that should inspire you. That should motivate you and, 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 and make you want to be a more fearless witness for Christ, And really the persecuted church, being exposed to the persecuted church around the world should transform us from being bashful believers to bold believers. To unashamedly proclaim the gospel to everyone we meet regardless of what they may say to us or what they may do to us. Come on. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? I guarantee you, I don't don't care who you share the gospel with this week, they're not going to kill you. They're not going to kill you, right? They might laugh at you. They may blow you off. They may pass you over for, for a promotion. They may not, uh, you know, invite you to be a part of the whatever, right? That's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters experienced around the world. I came across a, a confession, a, a declaration, if you will, from one pastor in Zimbabwe. You may have heard this before. I think it's a popular declaration that's been out there on the internet. But this is what he said. He said, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Christ. I won't look back Let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. That needs to be our heart. That needs to be our declaration. And so Paul, being... Chain for the cause of Christ, provided him greater contact with unbelievers, and provided greater courage to believers. And so it is with all persecution. And, and I think that is God's perspective when it comes to persecution. We need to see and think about what we've been exposed to today with the persecuted church, and we need to see it from God's perspective. We need to see it from God's Word's perspective so that we can rejoice with those who suffer. And when we suffer, because we know that whatever we're going through, whatever we're experiencing, whatever kind of suffering or persecution, uh, we know that it always results in the advancement of the gospel. And we know through stories like Fatima and Victoria that, that, that there is greater contact, right, with lost people, the gospel is going out to lost people and it's also stirring up the church. It's stirring up the church. It's hopefully stirring up this church to be more bold with the gospel, right? So that, that we'll leave here today and the gospel would, will advance in this community because some 26-year-old girl who got saved out of uh, Islam, right, was willing to give her life for Christ. And God uses her testimony, her, her death, to advance the gospel here in Montgomery County. How cool is that? That's God's perspective. That's how the Bible, I think, would have us respond to this today. We're not sitting around feeling sorry for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but letting them motivate us and inspire us to be all that God has called us to be here. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this really irony. It's really a paradox of persecution. It seems like not anything we would be excited about, thankful for, and anything we would rejoice in. But Lord, we just see how you have ordained in your wisdom that the way you want your church to advance and grow and to flourish and the gospel to go out is through suffering and persecution. And so, Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are faithfully suffering and being persecuted, even giving, them, giving up their lives for the cause of Christ. And, and we know that you're using that to, to, to bring others to Christ. And hopefully you're, you, you'll use it in our hearts today as well. Lord, we pray that you would stimulate us and, and, and to, to love and good deeds through what we've experienced and witnessed today. Lord, that our exposure today to these faithful saints would not be wasted but it would motivate us and it would embolden us Lord as witnesses for Christ this week with the, with the people that you put in our sphere of influence Lord that we would just be excited to tell them about Jesus we pray this in his name Amen